Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about stuff. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. Today I'm going to go ahead and go first. But I actually, I was as I was listening to the radio driving over to Sarah's house to record, I heard and have not verified at all, so I'm sure this is true because it was on a morning radio program on local radio. <laughs> uh, they have invented biodegradable golf balls that degrade specifically in ocean water. Yay! And then contain fish food inside. Oh, that's brilliant. Because billionaires like to shoot golf balls off their mega yachts. (laughs) (laughs) But I can see the utility also for golf courses that are next to oceans and even bodies, non-salt water, bodies of water. So that's pretty cool. I love that. I like that someone thought of it. For new listeners, we have an episode about golf balls, and they don't go anywhere. They just stick around. Kind of like gum. They do not hatch robot turtle babies, unfortunately. It's a downer. That'd be another good one. Biodegrade and then have little little robot turtles. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Today, my topic is where did the lost cosmonauts go? Oh, a disclaimer. This is a conspiracy theory (laughs) and not one that I specifically believe deeply. It's more a very interesting topic that I enjoy reading about. And then there is enough credibility about some of the events for them to be worth taking seriously as a possibility. But none of this really that I'm about to talk about barring a very few things are certainties. So that's a that's an okay conspiracy theory disclaimer. Did that work? Yes. Okay. If they're going to be soylent green, I'm going to be so mad. I don't think so. Okay, go ahead. That was not in my research. <laughs> <laughs> be a filter not a sponge for conspiracy theories, folks. All right. So Soviet space program. There was a big space race in the fif- late 50s and early 60s and Hate to break it to a lot of people, but the Soviets did most things first, except land a person on the moon. The Soviet space program, instead of astronauts, they were called cosmonauts. They achieved a lot of space firsts, like I said, including the first successful launch of a satellite, Sputnik, first successful launch of a dog, Laika, although Laika will come into play later in terms of conspiracy stuff. So hang on. First human in space, first lunar probe, first remote-controlled rover in space, first space station, and the first woman in space. And there are probably other Soviet space firsts. Now, the way they did this, by and large, not all of this, but a lot of this, especially the early stuff involving living things, was to not be particularly deeply invested in the safety of the program. And there were plenty of safety issues with the American space program too. The lost cosmonaut theories, because there's more than one and a lot of people have heard one or the other, but it's when I talk to people about this or even bring it up, they don't tend to all discuss 
every single lost cosmonaut theory, but the overall theories involve the USSR covering up the deaths of cosmonauts during the early stages of their space program. There are multiple possible deaths that have been covered up, or there are also zero possible deaths that have been covered up, just to be clear. I'm not a both sides kind of person most of the time. Yeah. But most of these things that happened are so sort of mundane. It's not like these cosmonauts met aliens and then were abducted. They Damn. just they just died in space. Mm. In these conspiracy theories. So, they're so mundane that they could easily happen, but they could also easily have not happened and people made up stories and the stories be very credible. Mhm. In Early 1958, there was a radio program, very similar to Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, that indicated that the Soviet Union had a manned suborbital flight that hit a peak altitude of 186 miles above Earth. Apparently, that was, much like War of the Worlds, a fake story. So it was a story, not Mm -hmm. a, a piece of news. But it sort of got the ball rolling on the Soviet Union getting people into space as early as 1958. And then, starting in 1957, so I'm actually going back a year, Achille and Giovanni Battista Giudica Cordiglia, I really apologize if I didn't pronounce that right, two Italian brothers started recording space sounds. They, cool. They got really interested in recording Sputnik and the beeps from Sputnik. They get really excited about it. <laughs> and so they became amateur radio recorders and operators, and they got really good at it. And they were able to record Sputnik. They were able to record Laika, the dog. They were able to record her heartbeat in space. Oh. Yeah. They were also able to record some things that they had a hard time explaining, especially with Soviet launch records. <laughs> so May 1960, they have a recording of a manned spacecraft reporting it's going off course, meaning that presumably whoever was in that went off into space, could not re-enter Earth's atmosphere. Oh, no. In November 1960, they hear a faint SOS Morse code signal sent from another troubled spacecraft leaving Earth's orbit. February 1961, they record a cosmonaut audibly suffocating to death. Oh my gosh. Or what they think is a cosmonaut suffocating to death. April 1961, and this is just before... Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space, went Mm -hmm. into space. It's like 10 days before, something like that. A capsule is recorded orbiting the Earth three times before re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. In May 1961, so this is after the first man in space, an orbiting spacecraft makes an appeal for help after going out of control. October 1961, they hear a cosmonaut losing control of a spaceship veering off into deep space. 1962, in November... A space capsule misjudges re-entry, bouncing off the Earth's atmosphere and into space. Oof. So that's why this is a lost cosmonaut theory, because the assumption, if you find these recordings to be extremely credible, is that they just bounced off Earth's atmosphere and floated off into space and are just sort of lost and hanging out. And space is huge. 
Hmm. So it's not something where we would necessarily have an easy time finding these very small rockets and capsules in space. And there's really nothing to stop them. I mean, once you get going, you're just going to go in that direction until you hit something in space. Yeah. In November 1963, they record a female cosmonaut who is indicating that her rocket is, or her re-entry capsule is on fire. And in April 1964, another cosmonaut is recorded as being killed when their capsule burns up in Earth's atmosphere. Wow. How terrifying. Now, you can actually listen to a lot of these and... They are sort of available to listen to. And these brothers have created an enormous catalog of space recordings. And they are considered very talented at what they do. Now, there are a few issues with the... Not necessarily... It's it's interesting. There are a few issues with the Italian recordings being certainly what I just described. Nowhere did I see anybody attacking their credibility or saying that they were you know, moon bat crazy, making things up. (laughs) Nowhere, including, you know, people who were very inclined to be skeptical or who concluded at the ends of their articles or discussions that the lost cosmonauts are not a thing. So it was very interesting that there's at most agnosticism about the Italian recordings. So first off, the recordings don't seem to coincide with the Soviet ability to successfully man a flight. Mm. The known proven flights they did perform at the time of a lot of the recordings pre-Yuri Gagarin, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing his last name wrong, were more in line with a dog going into space or even little mannequins. Mm -hmm. And I'll talk about the mannequins later. There are no other known recordings from any other listeners at the time. And there were definitely radio operators listening, both amateur and professional, because Sputnik launched a significant interest in listening to outer space because the Soviet Union released the radio frequency at which you could listen to the beeps from Sputnik. Huh. So it... It's it's not something where these two brothers were very much in the know or doing something very, very, very difficult that would be impossible for other people. And then there are some reports of Soviet admission of failed unmanned flights that coincide with the recordings. But it's hard to verify these reports or even find them because it's Soviet declassified records and on top of the Soviet Union and the current Russian government being very invested in secrecy, much like the current and the previous U.S. governments, just to be clear. Also, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, record keeping and record access and record release were just kind of messy because the country was in such a huge flux. Right. And had so many more immediate problems like making sure people get fed that whether or not they are either accurately covering up or accurately reporting on <laughs> something that happened in 1961. It just, I'm, I'm sure it just wasn't an immediate priority. There are grammar and technology issues with what is said in the recording. The cosmonauts were very highly trained pilots. They did not just shoot whoever was willing to go up into space. These were fighter pilots. They were, they knew what they were doing. It's a big part of why 
anybody was able to be successful in the beginning of any space program, including the U.S. space program. These people knew how to deal with flight properly. And extreme stress. Yes. And some of the uh, grammar that they use in the recordings and the technology that they mention is not considered accurate. Now, I don't speak Russian, clearly, since I'm probably mangling every name in this. So I can't verify that. But I could see that being a, a reason to think maybe these aren't actual cosmonauts up in the skies. It's, it simply means that these recordings are not definitive. These brothers aren't being painted as liars. And it's improbable that these recordings are, say, forgeries. If there's an alternate explanation, the most likely one is a radio transmission between an unmanned vessel and USSR cosmonaut program headquarters so that they could test if radios work, so that they could keep track of people. So... That's something to think about. So all, all those recordings and discussion of them and things like that have fueled a lot of speculation about lost cosmonauts as well. There's another incidence that has a an explanation. And also, I'll just go ahead and tell the story instead of explaining and then telling and then explaining. Erased cosmonauts. So it was not uncommon in the USSR for people to be removed from photographs when it was inconvenient for them to be in photographs. <laughs> and there is proof that some cosmonauts were literally erased from photos from the Soviet space program. It fueled rumors of their deaths in flight. Now, the bulk of these cosmonauts were tracked down, and a lot of them were expelled for what was considered bad behavior or removed because of medical issues. So they were removed from the program and then removed from photos. The names of the erased cosmonauts have been found. So it would be kind of like if... Everyone that was in the Mercury manned flights to space was published in the newspaper one day, but nobody knows who those people are before they've gone into space. You know, they're part of a training program. So all, right. the, all these trainees, unless you're their aunt or uncle or whoever, you're not going to recognize them. So them not being in the next photograph, a lot of times it would be something people wouldn't necessarily notice. Right. Like, oh, James Oberg, a very avid author and researcher of Soviet space actions and cover-ups, actually shook the hand of one of these disappeared men. So he's the type of person where he tracked them down and you know met with one of them. So they're not all just gone. They didn't. This guy obviously didn't die in space if, if a very skeptical and invested author shook his hand. Anyway, but there was one cover-up. Valentin Bondarenko. He accidentally set his capsule on fire during an endurance training exercise on Earth. It took 30 minutes to open the door because the capsule was held at low air pressure and the door opened outward. So the air pressure outside was high enough to keep the door shut. This was a very similar issue in terms of door opening direction and air pressure to the, Merc I believe it was a Mercury capsule disaster that resulted in the deaths of American astronauts. Yeah, I think it was Mercury missions, one of them. Uh, it was either that or the first Apollo mission. I don't remember which. But it was, it was apparently something that was a, a common issue and a serious problem. Because it took 30 minutes to open the door, even though the... Uh, Mr. Bondarenko was still alive oh my after he was 
the door was opened. He died 16 hours later from shock. And his death was covered up. It was denied by the USSR and he was erased from cosmonaut pictures. In this revelation in 86 started feeling more rumors and more, well, what else are they covering up? And in terms of deaths in space, they the USSR did cover up that Laika, the dog, died in space. She overheated, much like dogs die in overheated cars. Yeah. And it was said that she died two weeks later from being euthanized after landing. Oh, see, I had always thought that she had actually been euthanized. Yeah. And that was oh, not the case. She unfortunately okay. died in space. Oh, poor baby. But they covered that up, too. And so it's the type of thing where they covered up these things that are unfortunate things that happened, but certainly plausible things that happened. So covering up more things like this and then not coming forward about it after uh, glassnost and all that started becoming sort of how they f- tried to function. It's, it's not improbable. So from my, and this is totally unrelated, from my understanding of how they covered up for a while or tried to cover up what happened in Chernobyl, the whole space missions thing does not surprise me in the slightest that they were trying to cover that the people's death up either. Just from the way that it seemed to operate in the USSR at the time with the bureaucracy. Yeah, and I don't want to get blamed for this. I don't want to be held responsible for it, and I can't fix it, so... Let's just say it didn't happen. Right. Well, it doesn't project the image that they wanted to outwardly into the world of the Soviet Union being strong and always correct, I guess. I don't know. That was my understanding of it. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong. So there were a few sources that weren't specifically USSR or originators. So there was Herman Oberth, who worked with NASA, and claimed that there were several launches and deaths before Yuri Gagarin's flight. And he claimed there were at least four. And then there was a Czech dissident, so this is technically a USSR source, who was a higher up in the military that corroborated the four flights. However, they may have been suborbital flights, not space flights. There is some recorded evidence that they weren't specifically space flights. So they were very high altitude flights, yeah. potentially. Which is what we did as well until we had people in space. Yeah, exactly. And that's a great time. Oh, we'll talk about, because we're talking kind of about secondhand information and rumors. So we'll talk about Robert Heinlein, the author. (laughs) He reported when touring the USSR in 1960 that trainees in the, I believe it was the Red Army, told him that there had been a manned launch into space and the ship was unable to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere and got stuck in orbit, which coincides with the Italian recordings in that they recorded a few people in 1960 not able to re-enter Earth's orbit. Wow. Or re-enter Earth's atmosphere. The USSR claimed that it was an unmanned test flight. The trainees claimed manned test flight and the cosmonaut is potentially stuck in space and dead. Still orbiting until they come down. Yep. Wow. Now again, secondhand information rumors. But I'm I'm shrugging at Sarah while while yeah. holding a microphone, and that doesn't really translate. To yeah, life. maybe they're up there. I was talking about the suborbital flights. There was a pilot named Vladimir Ilyushin. Ilyushin. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I'm really not familiar with Russian names. I'm familiar with. Uh, some naming conventions, but not mm-hmm. pronunciation. 
He may have been the actual first man in space in April 7th, 1961, and his mission was aborted early. And I don't know if you remember, but right before Yuri Gagarin's flight in 1961, they recorded a mission being aborted early. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Anyway, Mm. the rumors are he landed in China and was held for a year. This was denied by the USSR and by Vladimir Ilyushin. And he's actually kind of peeved that he is. That's the impression people get is that he's kind of peeved that he has to deny this at all because he was never a cosmonaut, according to his stories. And he just is annoyed more than outraged or anything like that. So Okay, yeah, I can People are just bugging him. Weren't you in space? No. No, I was a pilot. I was a really good pilot. Why are you talking to me about outer space? I flew in inner space. Yes, I was in space with the dog. We came down together. (laughs) So there were stories published and like right after this happened in the US and French media that claimed that the story was true and that he was alternately dead in a coma in China, completely insane. Or that Yuri Gagarin never went into space and he was just a stand-in for uh, Vladimir Ilyushin because he was indisposed from being in a coma dead in China or insane. Okay. It's tough to tell if this event is even possible because China would have likely announced this because it would have made them look really powerful. Because they had a, a... in terms of sort of communism, they had a relationship with the USSR, but it was sort of a political, it would have been a great political plot point to have. I was going to say, weren't they frenemy kind of? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, NORAD found no indication of a launch, and they tracked Santa, so I think they're credible. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. They do track Santa, but <laughs> I, I, I do think they're probably at least moderately credible. And there's no indication in any USSR declassified space records of Ilyushin ever being a cosmonaut. And while you're like, oh, of course they covered it up. There are a lot of, as I said, during the collapse of the Soviet Union, it would probably have been difficult to completely erase a cosmonaut who was the first man in space from all records of ever having been a cosmonaut at all. And wouldn't the guy who was perhaps the first cosmonaut who is still alive, by the way, and was not in China in a coma, dead or insane, wouldn't he kind of, now that the USSR has pretty much collapsed, be like, oh yeah, I was in space? Potentially. (laughs) Okay. Unless he's, I don't know, unless he's getting paid an awful lot to say not not so much. But, you know, it's, it's the type of thing where... He probably did a suborbital flight. He probably crashed. But he probably wasn't a cosmonaut. Yeah. But maybe he was because there is that recording. (laughs) Now, speaking of Russian naming conventions, let's talk about Ivan Ivanovich. Oh, man, that's the best name. Ivan, son of Ivan, a.k.a. And also sort of a rumor of a fourth cosmonaut. And this goes into the erased cosmonauts, but I couldn't find a lot of information about him. Anyway. There were rumors of a missing or killed fourth cosmonaut in the original cosmonaut training program. And there were a lot of pictures of just three cosmonauts, but there were rumors that there were four in the program. Mm -hmm. And that was all the information I could find. So I know that's not very helpful. But in March 1961, a capsule landed near Prem in the USSR with a body ejected from it 
that landed safely. So it was intentional that the body was ejected. That was the landing procedure, landing on Earth for cosmonauts, not in water. It was a dummy, Ivan Ivanovich, a mannequin. Now, nobody told these poor people that this was happening near them. So a a bunch of villagers came to see what was going on. And they ran up to this dummy who looks a lot like a person. And one of the villagers actually punched the dummy in the face. Because that's what you do to revive someone. Well, so this was just after Gary Powers, a U.S. spy, had crashed in the USSR. Oh, okay. So people didn't know if if this was an American or what, a a moon monster? What, you know, it's it's a space shuttle landing in your beet field. (laughs) With a with a man popping out of it, <laughs> it would be terrifying. <laughs> His flight was also crammed with animals, plants, and human cells to see if man flight would work with a with a weighted mannequin instead of a human being in the flight. There's no mention of what happened to any of those animals, so I'm not entirely of sure. Of course not. In the second flight, they actually put a big sign over his face that said "mannequin." So that people would know. It was in Russian, obviously. So it's whatever the translation is. You don't need to punch this one. Yeah. (laughs) And the flight did include recordings to test. And this is in, again, 1961. To test radio reception on Earth from space. It included a choral performance and a cabbage soup recipe being recited. I'm kind of interested in the cabbage soup recipe. Right? (laughs) This cosmonaut cabbage soup. So that also fueled rumors because there was no information given to people about this body landing in a field (laughs) with a space capsule. (laughs) With a sign on its face that's just mannequin. Just crammed full of mice. Crammed full of mice and plants and cells. And it's March, so it's not nice weather. Actually, the second flight was, he landed... Ivan Ivanovich landed in feet of snow. So it took a while and they had to pay villagers. uh, The USSR cosmonaut program had to pay villagers to take them up to the landing site in sleds (laughs) to retrieve the body. You know, I feel like uh, the next mannequin I own, I don't know why I don't a mannequin. You never know. It's going to be named Ivan Ivanovich. All right. (laughs) So that is... A rundown of what I could find about lost cosmonauts. And it doesn't, some of this stuff doesn't sound improbable. (laughs) (laughs) Some of it does sound somewhat improbable, or there are more likely explanations. Sort of Occam's razor, what's the simplest is the most likely. But sometimes the simplest is they flung a body out into space (laughs) with a tin can and it didn't come back. And there is that whole meme, uh, meanwhile in Russia, that is a thing for a reason. (laughs) Yes. So there's a lot of secrecy in global power governments and their actions. Yes. And I really enjoy learning about lost cosmonauts. (laughs) This is just a topic that I really like. It was really fascinating. I had no idea those Italian guys had recorded all that. I'll see if I can insert... If you've, you'll have heard the recordings if I can insert them. And if not, I will insert a link in the show notes.
So for my topic, completely and totally unrelated to cosmonauts, I mean, I guess if you stretched it a little far, it could be. <laughs> Ooh, we could get real conspiratorial. <laughs> We're going to get into a few little conspiracy theories that are kind of interesting. So the present logo of Starbucks has been around since 2011, and I actually had no idea they'd been around since 1971, and their logo has changed a few different times. The story is a little bit interesting to me. I, I found it interesting anyway. And I'm going to give you some historical background. So we're going to talk about the present logo first, just so you have an idea. The present logo is all green with the siren in the middle, but you can only see her face, her crown, a suggestion of her two tails and her hair. You used to be able to see a lot more of her. So some historical background. The Starbucks was founded by three friends in 1971, and they had it a place in Pike's Place Market in Seattle. They originally named the place Pequod Coffee after Captain, Captain Ahab's ship in Moby Dick. I guess they really liked Moby Dick. However, they decided they didn't like that name and instead named it Starbuck after Captain Ahab's first mate. <laughs> that's cute yeah it was a, i think it's a good choice pequod i don't know would you go to pequod coffee no okay <laughs> they needed a logo so they went through old maritime books and they found the picture of a two-tailed siren the picture had the siren's breasts out and she was bare-chested you could see her nipples and then i guess people complained because you can see a cartoon character's nipples so they redrew her so that her hair covered her nipples. But you could, really. So they. Oh, I know. It's certainly something. Sh- <laughs> she's a drawing, people. Anyway. <laughs> a drawing of a fantastical creature. <laughs> exactly. So from 1971 to 1987, the logo was a brown logo with the two tailed siren. If you're not familiar with the two tailed siren, she has two tails instead of one. So she. This siren is holding her two tails, so she's got her hands out holding her one end of each tail. You could see her boobs and her belly button, and she looked like the old maritime drawing of the two-tailed siren from Greek mythology. In 1987, they decided that the logo should go from brown to green to symbolize freshness and growth, and the siren, she got another makeover. You could still see her two tails and her belly button, but she was more figural than she was before. She was a lot less like the old logo where it was definitely like a Greek mythology thing. And her breasts became suggestions under her hair because Lord forbid anybody have boobs. And Especially something with two tails that's a cartoon. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> This logo was green. It was like a medallion around that says Starbucks coffee around it. In the middle, the siren was an outline of black and white. And again, you could see the suggestion of her breasts underneath her hair, and you could still see her belly button. Well, I guess that wasn't a good logo. They wanted to redesign her again. So in 1992 to 2011, the mermaid is still in the center in black and white with the white Starbucks lettering around her but you can no longer see her belly her belly button and her boobs under her hair her hair is just wavy you can also see less of her tails you can only see like the suggestion of them which is kind of how the logo is now but there was that um green and white starbucks lettering around it still 
So then we get to 2011 to the present. She was redesigned and redesigned and redesigned. They refined her face until she they figured out she was perfect. They did actually did a few iterations of her face. They made her more realistic, more realistic looking in that she had like eyelids and she was, you know, looked like a model. But then they realized she was really too symmetrical and she was really creepy looking. <laughs> <laughs> I found this really funny. So they redesigned her to make her less creepy by b- making her less symmetrical. So if you look closely at her now on the logo, you'll notice that she's a couple of pixels off in her eyes so that she looks more friendly. Aww. Yeah. The logo now does not have the Starbucks medallion around it. Instead, it's just the mermaid in green. Like I said, she's non-symmetrical, just a bit. You cannot see her belly button or her breasts, just her hair. And those are the redesigns. And I wanted to get into, because people have opinions about everything, and there are conspiracy theory issues about her and what she actually means. And so I, I looked on the internet and I read the comments and, <laughs> and I really shouldn't have. So, <laughs> the, the, so there's here's some popular opinions by people who care a little bit too much. They, they thought that the original logo was slutty. They were slut shaming a, a fish lady on a cartoon. Yes, they were. Because you could see her breasts and her, she was holding her fish legs apart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the first one uh the other one is there's a theory that she actually represents the sheila gig i don't know if anybody is familiar with the sheila gig she is a primitive symbol that decorated early chur- churches in europe she's thought to possibly be an ancient fertility symbol it's a kind of a grotesque figurine of pa- a lady holding her huge vulva open. Some think to symbolize the birth of the world. The siren holding her twin tails is thought to have evolved from this image. I think you're going a little too far with this one. Then there's Yemaya. Some people, there's actually quite a following of this, thinking that the Starbucks siren is actually a depiction of Yamaya, the goddess, the uh, Orisha, the Yoruban Orisha, the goddess of water and life. Um, And she is actually believed to be the mother of all the rivers and spirits, and she's depicted as a mermaid, sometimes with two tails. So when Yamaya came over to the New World, um, she the slave trade brought the West Africans over, and with it, with them, they brought her. And so Yemaya belief uh, came with them, and she's syncretized with a lot of other beliefs in Afro in the Afro-Cuban diaspora. So there are quite a few videos on YouTube of people arguing that the Starbucks lo- logo lady as Yemaya, I, I guess, sure, um, she might be. Sounds legit. Sure. Then there's the Ishtar Astarta, the Mesopotamian goddess. There are people that argue that she's actually Ishtar. Uh, Ishtar and Anana are two goddesses that are kind of melded together. They're from Mesopotamia and Babylon. And Ishtar is the goddess of love, sex, and war. She's sometimes depicted as being a half woman, half bird, or sometimes split tail mermaid or serpent lady. And then this goes into the people that believe that Starbucks then is evil because it represents Babylon and the mother of harlots, which are 
mentioned in the book of Revelations in the Bible. So Starbucks is actually evil and you shouldn't go there. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That puts a whole new spin on their Christmas cups. <laughs> <laughs> and then there are people that argue that she is actually Melusina. And this is a reference to an old water fairy story of a half woman, half fish who becomes a half woman, half fish every Saturday. Other times she's just a <laughs> regular lady. Um, she, she marries this dude and she says, hey, dude, um, I will totally marry you, but you can never look at me on Saturday. Like you just let me be in my room. So he gets curious what she's doing because they have like 10 kids and all of them are really strange children, I guess. And so he peeks through the peeks through the keyhole and sees her in a bathtub being a half serpent, half mermaid lady. And then she finds out that he saw her and one of her 10 children burns down the church in the village. <laughs> <laughs> That's that, one of the stories I read there. I guess there's a few of them. <laughs> that escalated quickly. I know, right? <laughs> so are you worshiping a pagan goddess when you drink at Starbucks? Mm. I mean, if you want to, you do you. <laughs> there's still freedom of religion in this country if you want to worship Melusina, Ishtar, Yamoya, Shayla Nagag or, you know, slut, shamer, you do you. But it's unlikely the owners of Starbucks have actually just said they really liked the picture <laughs> <laughs> and they of the siren and they wanted her to lure you to drink their coffee. I think that sounds like the most reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> the end. <laughs> All right. It's a conspiracy episode. <laughs> I do have a reuse project. Awesome. Unless you have more about Starbucks. No, that's it. So I was traveling this past weekend and forgot my toothbrush. At, and so I asked the hotel for a dental kit and they gave me a very nice toothbrush. But now I have a toothbrush that's extra. And I remembered what I used to do with to old toothbrushes when I was a kid is to boil them in water and then bend them with tongs until they made bracelets. Cause you what? Can, yeah, you can pull the bristles out. And this mostly works for ones that are not the ones that are like the white plastic with the rubbery bits so that mm -hmm. you don't lose grip on your toothbrush, which I don't know. I don't know that I lose grip on my toothbrush, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it just flies right out of your hand. It's like the as seen on TV commercial people who just like f fumble through life. <laughs> anyway, it works best on the ones that are plastic like clearish plastic and it's a lot of fun to do with like preteens and kids because they get pretty excited about getting to like wear a toothbrush around and there was a fad of it when I was in middle school for a little while really yeah there was also a fad of uh boiling chip bags to shrink them and then putting them on keychains so I guess that's a good reuse for a chip bag. I've never heard of either of these things. I really want to do this yeah. now. So I'm going to make a toothbrush bracelet. That's awesome. So you can't, not the white plastic ones, but like maybe flat ones? Yeah, the flattish ones. Okay. So huh. if you got extras. And again, you got to pull out the bristles first. You can pull them out with pliers or tweezers. They come out pretty easily. Okay, cool. That's cool. I want some toothbrush bracelets. <laughs> 
I'll have to look into the chip bag thing. Don't boil chip bags until I tell you in the next episode if that was actually what people were doing because I don't really remember. But it was kind of like shrinky dinks. And for the love of Melusina, don't put them in the microwave just to test it because they might be metal. God almighty, don't do that, please. (laughs) (laughs) Starbucks almighty, don't do it. Starbucks almighty, don't do it. (laughs) I love this conspiracy episode. (laughs) We should do more. They're so fun. Mm-hmm. Where does it podcast.com. You can actually go to where does it podcast.com slash listen. And I've got links to all the places where we are listenable as well. 